Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Samantha, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you back on the show, and we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about movement and the power it has over our mind on improving our mental health. And on that note, you know, I think m- many are familiar with the term positive psychology or positive psychiatry. And, and I want to start there um, be- because there's a framework and I think it's critical to understand the framework as we dive deeper into this conversation today. So let's start there. Can, can you talk about the positive psychiatry framework, you, specifically your framework? Well, no, I'm so, thank you. This is a music to my ears, is a question like this. But positive psychiatry is really the science and practice of medicine that seeks to enhance well-being. And because for so long, psychiatry has been focused on what's wrong. And positive psychiatry is as interested in the alleviation of symptoms and the reduction of, of issues that people are facing, but also interested in the promotion of health and wellness. And we, I think for a long time, we were just looking at that one side of the coin, that alleviation of symptoms and positive psychiatry is thinking and asking that question, how can we also boost health? And so if you think about maybe traditional psychiatry and psychology, looking at pathogenesis, which is the understanding and the treatment of disease, positive psychiatry is also looking at salutogenesis, which is the creation of health. In the spirit of creating health, I think so much, so many of us are interested in, in, in being proactive and at the same time, having a toolkit for when we, we have those rough days ahead, something that a lot of people do. And there's a lot of science with regards to the benefits for mental health specifically is running. And so what, what does science say about the health benefits, the mental health benefits of of getting out there and going for a jog or a run? You know, it's something that I wasn't trained traditionally in, and I have subsequently, you know, in my, my work in positive psychiatry, it's become just increasingly clear and apparent, and there are truly mountains of evidence that show that running not only can boost your physical health, and people are probably more aware of the cardiovascular benefit of movement, but also it has this tremendous benefit on your mental health. It impacts your mood immediately in the short term. We know people feel better. There's an elevation in how they're doing. You know, and people, sometimes they don't even clock it. They're not even aware of it. And so I'll ask them, you know, maybe... On a scale of one to 10, before you go for a run, just, you know, how do you feel circle? Like, is it a four or a five, whatever that is, if it's a three, and how do you feel afterwards? And consistently people feel better. They report better moods afterwards. And it's also though long-term associated, you know, with helping manage chronic stressors that people deal with on an everyday basis. And there's an old saying that it's sort of like a joke saying, you know, we've found the miracle cure for depression, for anxiety, for obesity, for high blood pressure, for ADHD and more. And it works instantly and it's effective and it even works, you know, really well in small doses. But the one hitch is it only works if you take it an hour after exercising for an hour. So, of course, this miracle cure is exercise itself and ideally running. It really is a very powerful way to combat stress. 
And, you know, it's really amazing. About 80% of people experiencing depression say that exercise can improve their mood and anxiety most of the time. I mean, if you think about how dramatic that is, it really has this powerful antidepressive, anti-anxiety effect. And it blunts your, like the brain's response to physical and emotional stress. So it's something that you know, I really have put in my toolbox today and I prescribe to patients. And interestingly, if you ask people who see mental health professionals, they they wish that their mental health professional would talk more about their physical health and movement and make that more of a topic and bring it front and center. And it's really something that I, I think is really important to bring into the therapy space because it is such a powerful booster of our physical and mental health. So you'll find yourself prescribing a run or getting out there and walking or just doing something, a jog. You do that. That's oh, all. absolutely. And it's really, I mean, it's probably one of the most powerful tools that I have. And also people can really observe the boost that they get from it. And obviously the more you do it, the better that you feel. And it's just, you know, 30 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day can, you know, you, you have this elevation in your mood, but it combats the negative feelings that we associate with a lot of the chronic stressors, just other benefits um, we can think of. And they can show this and they have in the lab. It improves attention almost immediately, your ability to focus. You know, so if anybody's having say, difficulty saying, oh, I can't focus. And especially, you know, post-pandemic, I think we've been overwhelmed when we've got so much uncertainty in our, you know, everyday lives about what's going on. It really helps sort of hone hone our focus and our brains are, like are functioning much more efficiently. We know that physical activity can protect against new episodes of depression. There's data showing this. We have better cognitive performance. People just in general feel better and more confident in their everyday lives. And, you know, the science behind the how this is working, I think we're still trying to, to figure out exactly what it is. We know that it increases metabolism and blood flow to the brain. It cre increases connectivity between different parts of the brain. There's something, you know, we know the endocannabinoids, these are the cannabinoids that your brain makes, are consistently boosted during exercise. And there's something called the bliss molecule. That, that's what I think scientists have named it. I love that because of its positive effect on mood that gets released during exercise. Also, you know, your brain is sort of flooded with serotonin, with dopamine when you exercise. And so that you also are having this sort of moment where people report almost you're, they're clearing the, like they have some clarity after exercise. It's almost like these emotional windshield washers that you've engaged after you go for a run. And that's why I think it's so important to, to clock how you feel before and after, just to remind yourself, because the next, like tomorrow, you'll be like, I don't really feel like it. And so just, I think it's a powerful reminder that like you, you the, the boost that you got yesterday and you're going to get it again today. So suffice to say a lot happening in the brain when you're out there getting your heart rate up. Yes, for sure. And so you, you mentioned, you know, the struggle of getting the run scheduled, exercise scheduled. So how do we drag ourselves off the sofa or out of bed? to go run, to go walk, to go work out when we just, you know, don't feel up to it. And what role can habits play? Because oh. I think we all go through that. Well, exactly. And it's almost like Groundhog Day. You'll yeah. have, you know, you'll feel so good and be like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. And then, you know, the next day you just don't feel like it again. And how 
certainly creating habits is really powerful. But also, I think we often beat ourselves up for, you know, not feeling like we're in the mood to do something. I think we almost put too much on motivation. And as we know, like motivation comes and goes. You might be really motivated in the morning to go for a run at five o'clock in the afternoon, but when five o'clock rolls around, you're not feeling it at all. So what can we do? And science has a lot to say, I think, about this and that we can learn from is making the behavior that you want easier. Like if you do want to go for a run, just you know, it's putting out your sneakers the night before or having your gym bag packed, having your jog bra on, you may be even wearing it that day if you're planning to go to the gym later. It's also like making a commitment to something. I mean, being having a commitment and being consistent is really important. And also, I think having some coaching around and that's not necessarily having a trainer, but even having like a friend that you're going to do it with. that's part of that commitment slash coaching and measuring how you're feeling in the experience of it. But if you're having trouble with that motivation piece, like you're not alone, we're all there, everybody faces that. But if you, whatever you can do is to make the behavior that you want a lot easier and you've lowered then the activation energy and that kind of hump to get over and powerful ways to do that are leaving those sneakers out and also having a friend waiting for you. And I always call that like the flake factor because you just don't want to flake on them and you're much more likely to succeed. Also, interestingly, studies show to get to that kind of pro-social element, when you do it with a friend, I mean, what could be more beneficial than running side by side with your friend, having a conversation, you're in the synchronized movement, you know, as you're getting this cardiovascular workout, you're chatting, you're talking, you're engaging your brain, you know, in this conversation. And I, I think that's sort of like the hat trick of happiness right there, that you're really giving yourself that boon. So if you could do it, in the company of another person, I think it's a you're you know you're going to get more like health benefits up from it, but it's also going to be a whole lot more fun. I agree, and I think something else that's been helpful for me in terms of exercise when setting expectations for me, I remember when I was practicing yoga all the time. You know, the early days of Mind Buddy Green and no kids, I had infinitely you know infinite amount of free not infinite amount, but a lot more free time. I would go to a public yoga class like every day in New York City. And, you know, I do the subway to go to class, be an hour and a half, subway back, and then do this five, five or six days a week. And then five or six days became two days, and then it became one day, then it became like never. And then where I am today is yoga is twice a week on the weekends for 10 minutes. And you know what? I never miss. And so now I have that expectation. And whether it's yoga or running or getting out of the gym, if, okay, I can do this two days a week, 10 minutes, I never miss. Mm -hmm. And so I think what are the expectations for, for what you're going to do and when you're going to do it? Because I think one, you establish a habit, but you also like build some confidence. Like I can do this versus I'm going to do this every day. And you know, then you start sliding and then you get discouraged. And then the habit that just completely, you completely fall apart with building that habit doesn't happen. So like, can you talk a little bit about how like Setting expectations with regards to commitment and actually executing is yeah. beneficial. And, and what that does in terms of think of positive psychology, in terms of committing to something and following through and why that's important. I think we can be really rigid sometimes, you know, and when you're, you know, when you have that expectation, that's super high. Like I'm going to do this five or six days a week. I'm going to go to the gym. 
And then you don't make it by Tuesday. And then you think, ah, this week is ruined. I, I, you know, I'm done. And and you'll sort of throw it away. And interestingly, Katie Milkman had done this research. I think it was at Google and looking at if you, or if you're asking people to exercise, is it better if you get, say, just, okay, every day at six o'clock or you give them a certain very narrow window that they can exercise in, or if you just say any time today. And they really didn't know what the findings would be. Would people be much more consistent with that narrow window or the more flexible one? And what they found was being more flexible and forgiving made it much more likely that people would be more committed to it. Because I think it goes into that kind of, you know, that's kind of throwing in the towel sort of mindset of like, oh, I failed. This isn't going to happen today, you know, and probably then then tomorrow and you sort of give up on yourself. But actually being, I think, a little bit more flexible and forgiving and again, just making it easier for yourself. I think having the plan is important. Having it on your schedule, it's as important as any other meeting you're going to have. But also, hey, it might get pushed back 15 minutes or 20 minutes, or maybe you're only going to be able to run for, you know, 25 minutes today and tomorrow you'll be able to do 45 minutes or whatever that is. And I think being a little bit more forgiving about it also if you do miss a day, her, her research is showing how giving yourself a little bit of a reward when you show up again the next day to do it. So you're, you know, rather than just being like, oh, today or this week is just, you know, not going to happen and it's a bad week, just really giving yourself a little bit of a carrot to show up, to go for that run if you missed it yesterday, because take advantage of those kind of positive rewards that you can give yourself. Maybe you're going to do it with a friend. Maybe you're going to listen to your favorite song. Also like the interesting research around what they call temptation bundling. If there's something that, you know, you really love doing, maybe you love listening to the Mind Body Green podcast, you know, maybe that's what you do when you go running, but you only let yourself do it when you're running. You're not going to let yourself do it when you're, you know, doing stuff around the house that you couple something that you don't really feel like doing with something you really enjoy. And that that's also a pretty consistent way to get people to to show up and do a behavior that they want to do, but they just kind of can't get over that hump. Colleen and I actually ran into a a fan of the podcast today as she was running in Dumbbell. So (laughs) maybe she's listening. So this is top of mind since we just had the half marathon in Brooklyn a couple of weeks ago. And you know, there's just something about running, whether it's a, you know, 10 K or half marathon or a marathon, people seem to have transformative experiences when they complete it. There's such a sense of pride. I've heard, you know, anecdotally heard stories, people turning their life around to to me, running is unique in that sense where there's just something about it, like that really can transform people. And so I'm curious, what's your take on why is it so special? I don't see that in other forms of exercise at all. I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I've seen it really change people. And it's fascinating that transformation, as you say, this sort of inflection that occurs and the tremendous feeling of accomplishment, because also it's not something where I find in other sports where people are sort of always in moving the goalpost. You know, with like that half marathon, they're so proud, you know, of of that and the tremendous feeling that happens. And with running, it really generalizes as well. I think that accomplishment in one domain and that sense of confidence there then translates into their social experiences. I I had a patient who was in the process of, of, you know, 
a, a breakup that was really hard and she started running and it was just absolutely transformational for her. And I think part of it too was that experience of flow. Mahai Csikszentmihalyi was the psychologist who had talked a lot about how flow is an incredibly powerful experience where your sort of mental and physical world collides and you're not really thinking about anything other than the task at hand. Obvious places to think about flow would be you know, in in a runner or maybe in a musician, but there are other places to find flow, but I think running is a very natural place. And flow is, I think, psychologically, this really protective state that we can be in. And the more flow we have in our lives, I think the stronger we feel. And perhaps these days, our lives have fewer and fewer experiences of flow because we're constantly disrupted and interrupted by our phones. And so we don't have that prolonged concentration. But when, you know, you're running and there's one foot you're putting in front of the other, you're almost giving yourself and your body this dress reversal for other stressors in your life as well. Like it's almost mimicking the stress response. And interestingly, people after a run, their levels of cortisol, you know, or go decrease and their levels um, of adrenaline decrease, which are typically part of the stress response. And I think what you're doing is you're almost simulating a lot of like those micro stressors we're, we're, we're experiencing every day, but your body is better at handling it. And it's kind of creating all this communication then between your gut, your heart, your renal system, your digestive system. And so you're better able to regulate like your heart rate variability is able to then, you know, you, you know what to, it should increase when it should decrease. And I think that almost simulation, that mimicry creates this buffer then of other stressors that you're going to encounter. And running is unique. And I think it is that immediate elevation. You don't even have to have much patience with, you know, you don't have to be doing it for 10 years to experience that flow and that elevation. Like it, it's pretty quick how much better people feel. And it's, you know, so interesting. There's been studies looking at people who have, you know, who've taken medication even, right? I'm, I'm a fan of medication when it's necessary, but also that versus giving them, you know, like exercise when they're asked to, to increase movement, when they're asked to run and people who do even 20 to 30 minutes of running a day, that their mood improves short term and long term. But also when they continue to do it, they're much less likely to relapse. I mean, if you think about it, what a powerful tool we have to give people for depression, for anxiety, for ADHD, that is you know, studies are suggesting that may even be more powerful than medication in many cases. It's amazing and love medication works, but we clearly over prescribe it. And when you have something like running, which can have similar, if not better results, you know, I, I think we need more and more psychiatrists like yourself who prescribe running. Sometimes I prescribe medication. Sometimes I prescribe a run. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, on the mental front, you know, th there's a saying, running's 90% mental, 10% physical. H how can we sharpen that 90% and, and the vi vice versa? You know, how can we use that 10% to make the 90% sharper? So I think that's a little, <laughs> a little bit interesting. It's all mental, but we're running to improve our mental health. So how do you think about that? In the context of, 
you know, how do you sort of mentally like stay in the game and not kind of just how do you persevere is what you're saying? Yeah. You know, you hear great runners speak and they say it's 90%, you know, it's all mental. Like, yes, you gotta do the work, but it's a mental game. Running as a sport is a mental sport. And so that is, there is some truth there. I'm like, everything's mental, but we're also looking at the physical to benefit the mental. So how do you think about that? relationship. Use the physical to sharpen the mental, use the mental to sharpen the physical. Well, and I think there's so many games we can play with ourselves, you know, that when we're running and there's some studies looking at this is even, you know, if you're going to run for five miles, don't be thinking I've got four miles, you know, left. Think like I've already done the, I've already done, think of how much you've accomplished. And once then the end starts to diminish, then you could think, okay, I only have one mile left. But I think looking forward to and playing those kind of mental games with ourselves rather than feeling like you've got this like a mountain ahead to climb. You know, we also know that there's like, I mean, that I think when we are people love, I mean, I'm a big fan of what they call like running naked. Like I really think that it helps to really like almost like hear your footsteps. And if you're running outside to like sort of notice the world around you and just sort of be in that headspace. But there are many people that will tell you that, you know, listening to music is a performance enhancing drug almost that like really that is what really gets people moving and past that kind of that wall that they might hit whatever mile that's going to be that kind of helps them get through that. And, the, you know, I think it's such a powerful force is when you're doing it with a friend or, you know, you've got some kind of goal in mind that you've set for yourself and you've got even if you're timing yourself or you have that kind of you know, we can deploy some of those mental contrasting, you know, techniques, you know, thinking, okay, what exactly is the obstacle in front of me that I'm facing? And then what is the action? What is my plan that I'm going to take? And if it it is, some people have those mantras that they're using when they're running that are just going through their head constantly, whatever that might be, as long as you're not sort of ruminating about something that's sort of more on that negative place of like, I'm not going to be able to do this. But if you have some kind of positive phrase that you're repeating. I, I know it's one woman who just runs herself. I am at peace. I am at peace. And she feels this incredible, like Zen like state. And I think that's what kind of is part of her elevation. And it helps her persevere because when she's just measuring it in terms of clocking those miles, it can feel a little bit less than it, it, it's she's, she clocks her time in terms of like landmarks, not in terms of like, I'm at mile two, I'm at mile three. She'll see like, you know, a tree that she knows is here or there. So she's sort of thinking that's what she's putting into her bank visuals that are helping her kind of get there. Also, people who find like kind of running for somebody else sometimes can be really elevating as well or for some cause outside of themselves. It also can be a huge booster. Really kind of asking people to tap into like if they're making a mental health change. You know, we know that actually like a psychiatrist or your doctor being like, you should exercise more. It's probably like the least likely, you know, you're just going to react and take it personally. Be like, why are they saying this to me? But how do you tap into somebody's true motivation? Like what is really meaningful to them to want to keep doing this? And, you know, if it's if that is like where they're feeling that helps them feel strong or that helps them feel healthy or I knew a grandfather who runs who says, well, that's really for me, like I'm doing it for my grandson, you know, like I want to be at his graduation. Like that's why I'm running too. Not to say things should be externally motivated, but that's really an internal motivation for him. And it's so interesting. I had a patient years ago who 
who was a big runner and had been running all of his life. And he had had some, he'd hurt himself somehow and he needed some kneecap surgery. And he was, he came to see me because he had, he couldn't focus at work. His wife was complaining about how difficult he was being. He was so irritable. He, you know, just was sort of all over the place with his concentration. And what it became really clear to me was that he had really been self-medicating all of his life with running. He had severe ADHD and he had been like, I think using running as this really powerful tool to be able to focus. And so, you know, he couldn't run for a little while. So we got him into the pool for a bit and now he's back running again and back to himself. But I think, you know, sometimes it's, you know, when we take it away too, we realize how powerful that that is and in our lives and that habit that we have that is so protective against all the inevitable stress stressors. We're going to like sort of, you know, this game of lock and mold that we're playing every single day. Fascinating. And there's a lot I want to unpack with you. And so I, I want to start with, you know, you mentioned the wall. And you'll often hear no pain, no gain when it comes to exercise. And so how do you think about no pain, no gain, and that tension between pushing oneself, you know, beyond our limits? Cause I think we all find that sometimes we're much more capable than what we think of specifically with physical exercise, but at the same time, not pushing too much. You know, you referenced your friend in a kneecap and, you know, I, I found myself injuring myself in the weight room a week ago. It went a little too far, you know, like a reminder, I'm 47. Can't do that anymore. Um, but, but how do you think about that tension? Cause I think it's really uh, important. Well, it's like sort of, where is that like sort of sweet spot of desirable dip? And I recently had read a study looking at young kids who are less they're less physically fit and that they don't you know those cones you're supposed to run around as a kid like twice a year this to torture and you're like oh my gym teacher is evil and that apparently kids are having a harder time doing that today but they are physically less fit but the other reason is that they are less tolerant of discomfort that they don't like sort of being in that sort of discomfort zone space. And that's like a whole other parenting sort of, you know, conversation we can have at another time. But actually, so what is that level of discomfort that we're willing to put ourselves in that is actually desirable, that's actually sort of helping us stretch ourselves? And we know that, you know, when people are tired or they've had a long day, that the last thing they feel like is doing anything that requires any energy or effort. And we all prefer to engage in these sort of effort sparing activities. But actually what all the research shows us is actually when we do something, especially active and running is one of those activities that we engage in that people do report then that they do feel much better about. So I think it's one of those questions where we have stopped. I think especially people who tend to be like perfectionists and you know who you are, you know, is that I think those are the ones at most danger for actually pushing themselves too hard. So it is listening, especially as, you know, over a certain age to how your body is responding to something, really working your way up to a certain place. We'd had a patient years ago who had run the New York City Marathon. She was a young woman, but she'd never run before. And then she, you know, did not do well and ended up in the hospital. Like that, that is not the advisable way to go here. You've got to sort of you know, work your way up to that. And especially if you haven't been running for 10 years and you ran in college and you're going to start again. I mean, obviously it's just sort of start slow, but 
but the, the point is you've got to start somewhere. You know, so even if you're going to run for five minutes or 10 minutes and, you know, having that like great pair of sneakers, having the right equipment and, um, you know, even maybe doing it with a friend and not overdoing it and listening to your body. But just because maybe you've got a little bit of, you know, muscle pain, you feel like you need a massage afterwards or something because you haven't done it in a while, doesn't mean you shouldn't try it again, you know, the next day as well. And I think that sense of consistency, but starting slow and working up to it. But I think when we just go from zero to 60, I think that's where we, you know, kind of can bump into pushing ourselves too far and, and hurting ourselves. Agreed. And, you know, you mentioned the cones in school. You just, you brought me back to, I have to tell the story. So when I was in eighth grade, uh, they wanted me to play junior varsity basketball. And in order to do so, and this is a long time ago, I had to pass a test from New York state that proved I could like physically compete with 10th graders. And so one of the things I had to do was like, do a, meet me at a certain time running around the cones. And I was growing three inches a year, but I, so like I was okay, but running, I wasn't fast specifically for an eighth grader as a 10th grader. I just didn't have the speed. And so I had to take this test and no one thought I was going to be able to do it. And my mother took me to our local church and she set up the cones and I would go every day after school and she would tie me running around these cones, like for like two months. And long story short, I was able to pass the test and able to play JV basketball, which was like huge. And it was such a confidence booster for me. I wasn't the fastest. I was a great athlete, but like, I wasn't as fast as a, I could play basketball better than a 10th grader, but I couldn't run as fast as a fast 10th grader. And I was able to do it. And it, it was such a confidence booster that I was able, I was like, wow, I practice. I set my mind to this. I did it every day and I could able, I could run around the stupid cones and I got the time. And to this day, I think it like, I, 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 you brought it up. I'm like, this was like a huge event for me. That's a great story and such a perfect story to kind of capture how I think those very specific goals one can have around running though. And it is that confidence builder. And I bet you anything that kind of boosted, obviously how you were playing basketball, but also, you know, in other domains where you could sort of translate that incredible sense of achievement into other ones. Like if you put your head, you know, your mind to it and your body to it, that you can actually do that. And I think for a young person or for anybody even getting older, even if it's like a hobby that you're thinking about, you know, people who might feel like after, you know, years of sort of lockdown too. And I think I've seen a lot more people running outside too, post COVID too, and really enjoying like that and being in the outdoors and, and finding that experience with they hadn't gone running in a really long time and they're like, wait, I'm back. And this feels really good. So I love your mom's story and those orange cones. Good for yeah. It, it's so funny. Somehow I think my mother told it to my, to her daughter and now she likes the story. She's like, tell me the story about the cones. <laughs> you gotta get some cones for her. I know I, we actually bought cones. It's funny you said that <laughs> and she loves it. So one of the things you've touched on you know, you mentioned like, you know, running with friends, it, you know, it, the, the importance of social connection, there, there are benefits from being outside, from just being with friends, IRL connection, I think is top of mind 
for everyone, given the mental health crisis coming out of COVID. And so, you know, it's clear we are who we hang out with. And so let's talk a little bit more about, you know, in terms of healthy habits, the benefits of, you know, building them alongside friends or relationships and how they, how friendships can become stronger when they're built around healthy habits and how we can integrate healthy habits into our friendships. Absolutely. And I mean, it is, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you about sort of our behaviors are contagious, you know, and you know, spending time with people who eat healthy and who value their sleep and, and healthy behaviors will certainly encourage us to, I mean, there's research around, you know, if you go to a restaurant with friends and they're ordering the unhealthy food, you won't even, you know, be thinking about it, but you'll just sort of have that, you know, that permis permission to be like, you know what, I'll have, you know, the same thing they're having in the French fries and whatever, I'll have what she's having. So I think spending time with people who share those values is really important. But also having like that partner in crime to engage with in that healthy activity. And even the way I think, you know, we, you know, if you know somebody who's going off to college in the fall, you know, or that is, what would you do? Like maybe is it giving them a yoga mat to go to school with or giving them a pair of sneakers to like that they, you know, that they'll love that they could go running in and encouraging behaviors through how even we give people or people we love gifts, you know, are you delivering them a cake or maybe giving them something and supporting something that is meaningful to them and that, you know, will elevate them in some way and help them maybe connect with like-minded people in their in college who are going to be runners as well. And I think being able to promote those connections and, you know, looking at people who make um, New Year's resolutions, thinking, you know, we can focus on a deficit. You can try to maybe if it's people who want to stop smoking or who want to lose weight, but actually people who engage in behaviors that are more about building strengths or doing more of something that they'd like to do and it has some pro-social element to it not only are they more likely to stick to that behavior change but they're going to enjoy it a whole lot more and studies show that their life satisfaction is much more likely to improve as well so i, I think that is very sound advice and i think a much easier conversation or a potential gift to give to someone who's interested in, in being healthier is healthy, but what do you do when, you know, there's a loved one who needs to take better care of themselves. And that is often a difficult conversation. If it's even, if it's even appropriate to have a conversation, how do you think about that? You know, I think anytime when we are shooting on anybody, like you should do this, you know, it's people just are going to get defensive and, and be offended. And I think that's sometimes that can even backfire in that they will, you know, just completely react really poorly and, and shut them down. And so I think when you can just really tap into what is meaningful to them, like what do they value most and ask them questions. I mean, I think we all know, even, you know, today with telling people how to think or what to do is not, or how they should feel about something is never a way to get any buy-in. And the only way that one can, I think, open one, somebody else's mind is to ask them some questions. Like, tell me, what do you think about this? You know, wh what do you value? What do you, what is meaningful to you? 
And if the, you know, they say, well, my health is meaningful to me. Like, well, what, what is it about your health? What would you enjoy doing? What could be fun for you? Could I help participate in some way in that? And I think when you come at it from a genuine place of curiosity and with empathy, rather than like sort of prescribing to them, like you should do this and, you know, this will make you feel better and any finger wagging or I think condescension or eye rolling that we ever bring into a room immediately sucks the oxygen out of it. And I, I think, you know, you just immediately alienate them. So coming at it with a question, with empathy, with curiosity, and again, not that sort of zero to 60 and like, here, you should start, you know, here's this marathon and something you up for. But what is a way, and maybe that he'd be offended by the delivery of some sneakers, but hey, I'm going to pick you up on Saturday. Let's go for a walk in the park you know, whatever that could be, just to create, I think, maybe a little bit more activity into their day to make something fun. And, you know, even, you know, we, there are studies that show that, you know, moms and daughters, they could go to a mall together or like going for a walk in the park together. They're going to feel more bonded and connected. And that connection's going to linger for longer than that trip to the mall where they're probably going to get in an argument about something and, and it's not going to feel as good. So what are ways that you can, that whatever you value and that person values, that those values can, you know, overlap and that you can sort of tap into their motivation that way. Another um, sort of research-driven way is to ask that person what kind of advice they would give somebody else. Like, what, you know, how would you advise somebody who's looking to, you know, be healthier? What, might, what suggestions might you have? Because to be honest, most people know what, you know, would help. They have the information. What they lack sometimes is some motivation and asking them to get like to be the position of an advisor and giving information that actually that will sometimes make them more consistent in wanting to engage in that behavior. Them. I, I love that you said empathy. I feel like we need to prescribe the world empathy right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think somehow I, I've never seen studies on it, but I would imagine that kind of movement and physical activity you know, because of the way it does, I think, create these connections in our brains and bolster them really, you know, gives rise to what we call neurogenesis, which is, you know, the creation and the birth of, of neurons. I, I would imagine there must be some empathy generating process that occurs and, you know, from that. I haven't seen, I, I've seen road rage. I haven't seen runner's rage, like runners riding, you know, just yelling. <laughs> No, never. Like there's a kind of calm and peacefulness and a generosity that I think occurs when people are running and that certainly afterwards there, it, it quiets a lot of the chatter, right? Somehow I think in, in our heads and a lot of the rumination that is, can just become so loud at times. In closing, you know, your book explores the larger topic of vitality. And what I love about that word specifically vitality is it's about being in an active state. You know, you're not static. It's not about the goal. It's about the journey. It's about continuance presence. And, you know, the more I think about our culture, our values, whether it's from childhood education to our careers, to the way we live our lives, it feels like vitality kind of should be at the forefront of what we're looking for, which really isn't the case. And so. How do you think about that? What, what are we getting so wrong culturally? Yeah, I mean, I think there's such an emphasis on the individual 
right now and that this idea that happiness kind of comes from within or it's all in your head. And, you know, I think it's in the like connections we make and the actions we take and how we participate. And a lot of it's really other oriented. And, you know, I think in, especially in psychiatry and psychology, sometimes it can be so much about the individual and how they are thinking or going through the world. But if we really want to think about that sort of bigger picture around meaning, what is that? And we know it's important to feel that you are valued, but also I think to feel that you're adding value in some way. And I think that's probably like the, the secret solace of meaning is to feel that you are valued, but you're also adding value in some way that transcends you, that is beyond you. And that, you know, maybe we've interiorized well-being too much and really thought it rested solely and squarely on the shoulders of the individual and not thinking about the individual in the context of their partners, of their families, of their communities, of their societies, and how can we kind of promote that connection and pay a little bit more attention to, to, to that. And I think that's how you can sort of vitalize yourself and is by sort of vitalizing the world that you live in. And you know, for me too, I think, you know, it really is about the journey. It's about being in motion. And there's, you know, a little bit of a, you know, metaphor with, with running. It, it, it's not about just like getting to the finish line. Cause then you ask the question, well, what next? Am I happier? I just accomplished this thing. You know, I'm, you look around, well, what's the next thing I want to accomplish? And I think people who tend to enjoy the journey and the process don't have that issue. Yeah. I think of like, you know, well-being is a verb and yep. that it's something that you have. It's something I think that you're, you know, constantly in the process of doing and that there, there's joy in that. I think that almost the, the arrival fallacy, like, oh, now I'm here. Like, I found myself. I'm good. Like, I don't need to do anything else. It's, I think we're fooling ourselves thinking that it's, there is an arrival and it is the, the process and actually finding joy in, in that process. I, I love it. And something Colleen and I say all the time is we strongly prefer to say well-being over wellness because it is a verb. It's about the journey. Yeah. So I'll put you on the spot. What's one thing everyone who's listening can do today that will have an immediate impact on our vitality? Wow. I think one thing you could do is put some sneakers on and go outside <laughs> and go for a walk or a run get your heart rate going a little bit. And ideally you'll do it outside and ideally you'll do it with a friend and have a meaningful conversation along the way. I love it. Samantha, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. It's so nice to see you.